from Manage Inbound Studios. This is Inbound Growth Live. All right, hey everyone, uh, welcome to our second pilot episode of uh, Inbound Growth Live. Again, I'm Keith Gutierrez, founder and CEO at Manage Inbound, and along with me is your co-host, uh, Jenny Dwyer, CMO at Manage Inbound. Um, first, I wanted to thank everyone for uh, joining us today. And before we get started, I wanted to mention just a few things. So one is uh, Jenny will be muting everybody. So if you have questions, please type it into the Zoom chat. Jenny will invite you to come on to ask your question live, or you can ask her uh, to ask the question for you. Um, second, we'll be piloting Inbound Growth Live every other Wednesday uh, during February and March. So our next episode will be held on March 2nd at uh, 4.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific, 7.30 Eastern. And we'll cover different topics on each of these episodes. And then finally, today we'll be wrapping up uh, and give you a sneak peek into the topics that we'll be discussing uh, on the second. So I first want to start by saying that Inbound Growth Live is a community event. Uh, this is an opportunity for all of us to come together as a community to support each other and learn from our experiences and knowledge. Our goal here is to provide a fresh perspective and new ideas that will support your business's growth in ways that your customers will enjoy and appreciate. All right, with that said, uh, we're going to get started uh, discussing uh, today the problem with most buyer personas. So I'm going to start making by making it uh, super clear that properly developed buyer personas are incredibly valuable to your business if they're used properly. Uh, the problem most organizations have is they don't develop personas correctly. And even if they do, they don't use them. So if you're not familiar with what a buyer persona is, they're examples of real buyers who influence or make decisions about the products and services or solutions that you market. They're a tool that builds confidence and strategies to persuade buyers to choose you rather than the competitor or the status quo. So what's wrong with most buyer personas? Well, most are built using a bunch of useless demographic information. Um, I think it was a couple of months ago, I saw a post on LinkedIn that did a great job of really showcasing this uh, problem. So they compared Prince Charles, you know, Prince of Wales to Ozzy Osbourne. So hopefully everyone knows who Prince Charles is and Ozzy Osbourne is, but anyhow, they're both male. They were both born in 1948. They've both been married twice. They both live in a castle and both are wealthy and famous. And yet, both of them couldn't be any different from each other. But if you're purely looking at them from a demographic perspective, they're the exact same person. So this really highlights the problem with basing your buyer personas primarily around demographic information. It doesn't matter how old they are, what their education level is, or if they have kids, or even if they drive a Volkswagen minivan. That doesn't really matter. Okay, so here's the real problem. Most buyer personas are built without any clear uh, or real customer research. Um, they're based on assumptions that are made by the people that actually create them, or they're based on insights from people within the organization that's created. 
So you, you can't just go to sales and ask them to tell them, tell you about your buyers, right? That just doesn't work. Yes. Salespeople are often the closest to the customers and they do have some valuable insights, but the problem is that most of these insights are the same insights that your competitors also know about. And you need to be looking for those granular insights that it will help differentiate you from your competitors instead. So for B2B companies with a considered buying process, the real insights come from win-loss interviews. Yeah, I mean, actually picking up the phone, calling people that have recently considered your product or service and talking to them, right? Most often the best insights are gonna come from loss interviews, people that chose a different solution over the years, right? You're gonna learn where your product fell short and it's gonna give you an opportunity to improve and address those concerns or barriers up front. Now you need to do enough research to identify patterns in your buyer feedback to help you be able to prioritize the real buyer insights themselves. So the most important insights are those that align with the buying process and how they prefer to make their purchasing decisions. According to the Buyer Persona Institute, there's five rings of buying insight that you need to know to build your buyer persona. The first is understanding the conditions that trigger the buyer's decision to look for a solution to start with. Second, we wanna understand the results or outcomes that the buyer expects from the solution. Third, we want to understand their attitudes or their concerns that actually prevent the buyer from purchasing the solution. Then we wanna understand the buyer's role in the decision and who else will impact the decision. And finally, we wanna understand the features that the buyer evaluates when they're comparing your solution to alternatives. So your buyers will reveal what they want in each step of the journey. Understanding who your buyers are and how they prefer to make purchasing decisions is the most fundamental step in building your marketing strategy. So once you've completed research, compiled the data, and developed a real buyer persona derived from factual information, the next step is to use those insights to inform marketing, sales, and your product strategy. So the takeaway here is to stop building buyer personas that are nothing more than fluffy profiling and start building buyer personas that are a representation of your targeted audience's real buying behaviors based on real buying insights. Uh, so with that, Jenny, I'll, uh, I'll take a few questions, but uh, you know, I've just seen so many people uh, you know, hand me buyer personas that are nothing more than just lists of demographic information and uh, really wanted to address this today because uh, it doesn't work, really doesn't help drive your marketing strategy forward with that type of information. Well, first, let me say that uh, I loved the analogy of Ozzy and Prince Charles because I don't think I would ever see them or hear of them in the same sentence, but I did tonight. But uh, uh, I, I think you're right on about stop profiling buyers and like start profiling the buying decisions you need to influence. So it was a great point that you made, Keith. Well, many points in there. Um, let me go over. Okay, we do have, uh, could you... Please repeat the five factors in a good persona. Yeah, Dennis. absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah. So the first one is the conditions that trigger the buyer to look for a solution. The second one are the results or the outcomes that the buyer expects from the solution. So we call those the success factors. Um, the third one is the attitudes or concerns that prevent the buyer from purchasing the solution, or we, we also call those the perceived barriers. The fourth is the buyer's role in the decision and who else will impact the decision. So we call that the decision criteria. And then the fifth one are the features that the buyer evaluates when comparing alternatives. And we call that the buying journey. I hope that helps you, Dennis. If you have any other questions, if you want to come on, let me know. Just put it in the chat. We'll take you on to ask some more. Um, in the interim, Keith, I do have a couple of questions that did come in. Let's start with Jerry asked, should everyone be included in creating buyer personas, meaning marketing, sales, customer service, or is it just marketing's job? That's a great question. I think the best solution here is actually have a out, out, somebody outside of your organization or at least somebody in your organization that is not involved in the sales process should be the person that's actually conducting the win-loss interviews. And there's nothing wrong with gathering insights from other people within your team, you know, uh, sales, sales team members, um, executive leaders, all of those people are going to have insights. But as I mentioned before, most likely those are the same insights that your competitors also already know. So we're really looking for those granular, you know, specific details that are going to help differentiate you from your competitors. And that's really only going to be derived through doing these win-loss interviews. So you're really looking at people that, you know, had recently uh, chose to work with your company or recently chose to work with a competitor or, or recently chose to, uh, to look at the solution, but, but decided not to move forward with it at all for some reason. So those are really the three areas that you want to look at. And you want somebody that was not involved in the sales process to be the person that's actually conducting those interviews. That's great. Um, Dennis, are you, do you want to come? Oh, you are. You ready to ask your question? Uh, hey, Keith, how are you? Hey, Dennis. Thanks for joining us. Sure. My question is this, you know, I asked about those five factors in a well-done persona and you repeated those. And while you were doing that, I was thinking that you could have a, a single customer or potential customer relationship with two big decision influencers who really have different personas. Yeah. Can you, can you comment on that? Because like sometimes we find ourselves selling or marketing into a, co a complex organization or a complex sales situation. And there could be a person in this department and a person in this department. And based on those factors that you were saying, they could have quite different personas. Like what's their role? What's their objectives? And do you really create multiple personas for people even within a given organization? Is that reasonable? Uh, it could happen, but typically you're going to have what we call a core buyer persona. So that's the person that's actually responsible for, for the evaluation of the product or service. And so what we're actually looking for is different patterns in the way that they're evaluating your product or solution. So if the, if the way that they evaluate it is completely different, and that's shown in the data, right, by, by interviewing multiple uh, candidates, then you're going to be able to depict that you have a, a, another persona. The persona will show its face 
in the data itself as you're compiling it uh, against each other. So yeah, it could be very, uh, it could very much be like that within an organization. But the idea here is to get, you know, that archetype of the actual persona that you're dealing with the majority of the time and what's important to them, right? As they're going through that, through that buying process. I mean, certainly there's always going to be nuances across the board, but the, the idea is to consistently have the information and the insights that are most impactful in making a, a purchasing decision. So you're saying don't even think about it at the organizational level. It's really trying to get a persona maybe across the market or across the market segment. Yeah. And, and again, it's how they're make how they prefer to make that purchasing decision. What resources do they use? Right. Well, first of all, it's like what's triggering them to look for the solution. Um, you know, we, we call, you know, that that piece of it is right, is the idea around, um, you know, what's what's getting them started, what starts right. their their journey. Um, so that could be different. Right. That could relate uh, a different persona in itself. If it's like, you know, X, Y, Z happens to this persona, but, you know, ABC happens to this persona, that might be one clear difference that happens right there in the priority initiative stage um, around, you know, what's triggering them to look. And then, you know, there's success factors. If the success factors are exactly the same, even though they might have different personalities, if the success factors are the same, they could be the exact same persona. Same thing with the perceived barriers and what's keeping them working with you. Right. And that's what we're really looking for is using the data to identify patterns that correlate to a persona uh, versus just individuals themselves. Gotcha. Good. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, well, Keith, that actually, Maria had asked a question very similar to what Dennis had, but how many personas should a company typically strive for? And I guess you, you did just touch on that. I know we are always looking at three to five, but I mean, they were like proud to think that they had 20. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to, I mean, again, there's no rule saying that you can't have 20, but the concept here is, is that you want the data to correlate around how many personas you're actually, you actually have. So typically that is, you know, two or three personas within an organization. Most of the time uh, we're not seeing, uh, you know, 20 personas within an organization because yeah. you have to develop different marketing strategies around each of those. And that could be very difficult. You might want to really rethink your go-to-market strategy from that perspective, if you have that many personas. Right. And I also, to follow up on that one, um, do we have, or do you have any particular process that you use when you sit down to create your buyer persona? Yeah, again, it's, it's really just uh, looking at people that had recently considered uh, purchasing the, your product or solution within the last 30 days is the best. If you can get it when it's fresh in their mind, they're going to be able to recall what, you know, the steps that they went through in making that purchasing decision. The thing to note here though, is that this works really, really well in a B2B setting where there's a considered uh, purchase. So if you're in a, in a setting that is a lower consideration, right? It, they're not a very high consideration per type purchase, then they may have problems recalling exactly, um, you know, how they made that purchasing decision. You know, you don't really think too much about it. If you need to buy a pack of gum, you just grab the gum and you buy it. Why'd you choose that flavor? I don't know. Right. I thought I'd try it. So there's really no risk in buying a pack of gum. Whereas, you know, maybe buying a, you know, SAS business piece of SAS business software, that's going to cost, you know, um, 
a couple thousand or a couple tens of thousands of dollars, you know, each year or each month could have a much higher impact on, on that decision. So they're going to consider it at a much higher level. Great. I have another question. Let me just unmute uh, Andrew. Oh, hang on there a second. Okay, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Hey, hey Keith. Um, so how would an organization compile the information that's gathered from uh, reaching out and uh, build a core buyer persona? What would that process look like? And then um, also, can this process identify personas that do not fit your ideal customer profile? And, and how would you proceed with uh, somebody that didn't fit? All right. Hopefully I can remember both of those. Or There might be three questions in there, but let me No, That's all right. That's all right. I'll do my best to, to, uh, to answer those. So the first one I think you asked is how do you compile that data? And so what you really want to do is, is whoever's reaching out uh, actually doing the interview again, you don't want it to be somebody that's in this involved in the sales process. You want somebody outside of the sales organization to do that. Um, it's good to work with a third party to be able to conduct these interviews for, uh, for you as well. Um, that takes it, you know, completely outside of your organization, but either way, whichever option you choose, you want to make sure that that person is, um, understands the strategy behind actually how to conduct the interviews and most importantly, beyond that, uh, we want to make sure that we're recording the interview and try transcribing that interview. And not everybody's going to give permission to record an interview. That's okay. You're going to have to just rely on any notes that they were able to take. But, but we want to ask permission to try to record the interview, then try to transcribe that interview uh, or take the notes and, and transcribe the notes into a, uh, an, an aggregation sheet. Um, Excel will work fine for this as well. Uh, again, the Buyer Persona Institute has a lot of the information that I mentioned um, uh, today on, on the process and how that works. Um, or you can, like I said, you can work with a third party that's trained in, in that process as well. Great. Thanks. And what was, uh, the, yeah, what was, the, what was the other question after that? The second question was, can this process identify personas that do not fit your ideal customer profile? Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because... I didn't bring that up before, but absolutely, you can clearly find what we call the negative personas. And the neg negative personas can help us identify the people that we really don't want to attract or target and helps us to really identify who those people are early uh, in marketing or sales. I mean, this can really be used from a, you know, from a marketing strategy standpoint, also from a sales enablement standpoint, right? It, all the way through to, uh, you know, RevOps. So I think that that's, uh, an important piece of it is being able to identify negative personas out of the, the data that you're compiling as well. And did, was there another question? Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. I think we're good for buying buyer personas, Keith, if you want to move on to your next topic. And if there's any other questions, I'll let you know at the end of it. But um, I think we are ready for the inbound marketing. All right. Yeah. Broken, yeah. So broken playbook. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, why the old inbound marketing playbook is broken. Uh, so those of you that are just learning about inbound marketing, uh, there's actually an older playbook that is broken. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that to, today as well. So the first thing I want to start is I want to be really clear that the inbound marketing methodology 
is great. And we love the inbound flywheel. Uh, if you're not familiar with the flywheel, I'll talk a little bit about that here as well. But um, if, you, if you're new to inbound marketing, this methodology, uh, it, it attracts customers by creating valuable content and experiences that are tailored specific to them, right? It's all about putting your customers first, aligning your entire organization around uh, developing a remarkable customer experience. So that's what the flywheel is, right? With, with the flywheel, you use the momentum of your happy customers to drive referrals and repeat sales. But before we had the flywheel, we had the linear inbound marketing methodology, which consisted of four stages. The first stage was attract, where you focused on attracting your targeted audience, mainly to your website, uh, could be to you know, your blog or social media or things like that as well. The second is convert. So converting that traffic into an actual, what we call a lead. Uh, the third stage of that then was close, closing the leads into actual sales. And the fourth stage of this was delight. And so it was around the idea of delighting your customers. And in general, uh, even though it's a linear marketing methodology, the methodology itself isn't bad, but there were really two main problems that came out of the old inbound playbook. So the first was really in that convert to close stage. And the convert stage became all about getting somebody's email address so you could nurture them with ongoing emails. So marketers ended up focusing on collecting email addresses as their primary success metric, um, also known as the marketing qualified lead, uh, which led to a poor user experience because marketers started to focus on created, creating more broad, high interest educational content that attracted many people that were interested in learning, but were really outside of their targeted buying audience. So taking this approach ends up clogging up your CRM with data from no fit contacts that will most likely never buy your products or services. The second problem was that many of the companies would then put their sales team on these contacts to follow up with them on by the phone and doing this when the contacts have actually shown zero buying intent. They're just like, hey, I've downloaded an educational guide and sales would be following up the, with a sales, sales call, right? And just because somebody downloads your educational guide doesn't mean that they want to or even need to buy from you. Um, and it doesn't really stop there, right? Marketers would also enroll these no-fit contacts into ongoing email nurturing campaigns, as I mentioned. And then they, and, and these are campaigns that they actually never subscribe to. And they never really wanted them in the first place. All they really wanted to do was download a piece of educational content. So it made for a really poor user experience. Uh, it was, unfortunately, it was a bit spammy, right? And marketing would look at all the MQL leads that were generated. And the sales team would say, well, all of these leads that you send me are junk, right? They'd be like, I got all these, you're giving me all these leads. And marketing is going, yeah, we got, you know, we got couple hundred leads for you this month and sales teams going, no, you, there might be three. <laughs> um, and even at that, most of the time they were, they were, they were all junk because there was just zero intent from educational content like that. Um, and like I said, I mean, sales is right because these MQLs they're, they're outside their target buying audience. Um, they weren't part of the right audience to begin with. 
and they're not in the market to buy anything at, at this point in time, right? So what I love about the new kind of the new playbook, which is the flywheel, is that it puts your customers first. Uh, and you're using the moment, the momentum of your happy customers to drive referrals and repeat sales. And it's focused on the long-term growth of your business. So the flywheel puts the customer at the center of your business. It's all about creating that momentum and reducing friction. So in reducing friction means don't asking, don't ask for an email address unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, you know, for, focus on getting the right audience to consume your content not open it or click on it or download it or visit a website page or whatever, right? It's how do you get the content to them so they can consume it? Maybe it's not even on your website at all. Maybe it's on social media. Maybe it is an email. Maybe it is on your website, but the focus has to be on consumption, not on clicks or leads or downloads and so forth. So today, uh, according to HubSpot, 57% of B2B purchases, purchase um, purchase processes are completed before buyers ever reach out to vendors at all. So just think about that again. 57% of B2B purchase purchases are completed before buyers ever reach out to vendors. And buyers that aren't looking for your company's, uh, they're, they're not looking for your company's marketing materials to make that decision, right? They're not going to your website and looking for that information. Instead, they're going to third-party review sites. They're going to peer-to-peer -peer recommendations. They're looking at word of mouth. Um, they're looking at uh, social media. They're looking at all these things you know, as, as they play a role or a bigger role in buying decisions more now than ever before. So this new inbound playbook is focused on generating demand over generating leads. So with that, I'll take a, a few questions, Jenny, but... I think this was a, a, a big one, right? There's still a lot of people out there that are focused on lead gen. And uh, again, I think lead gen is okay if it's done in the right way. But unfortunately, marketers have just focused on the, the numbers or the metrics that come out of it and trying to figure out how to generate as many, you know, quote unquote leads that are focused around, you know, an email address rather than actually being tied more closely to revenue, which is what's going to create the impact for the business. You know, it just, why did it take so long for us marketers to go from that linear, you know, across from attract, convert, close and delight? It makes sense for the flywheel because you just, you get uh, momentum because it's circular because you have attract, engage and delight and it's always feeding itself and between marketing and sales and back and forth. But we're, we're getting there as marketers in 2022. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think a lot of this is because uh, a lot of these methodologies, which were fantastic, were built by technology companies as well, right? And so um, they provided us with a ton, a lot of marketers with a ton of great training. I remember when, you know, when I was in college, we were learning about, you know, fundamentals, um, the fundamentals of marketing and, and very little about digital marketing because it was the very early 2000s and the web was still just being created. So the concepts around using blogs and social media and websites and all that stuff were relatively new and they weren't teaching this stuff in school. So we had to, we had to really rely on what we could find on the web. And a lot of these technology companies did a great job of educating us from that perspective. And as anything goes, right, once you identify that the goal is to generate the 
you know, the lead or the marketing qualified lead, uh, you know, marketers kind of, kind of, you know, spoil it a little bit and go, well, how do we make, how do we do that? And, and, you know, make it as, as many as we can, because that's what everybody wanted. And it was easy to show your, you know, executive team, Hey, we generated, you know, 256 leads last month and all of that was great. And everybody's cheering on rah, rah, rah. But then I think, you know, finally it's gotten to the point where like, well, what does that actually mean for our business? Has that actually generated growth? Is that really helping us out? And the real, the realization is, is that, um, most people that are looking for a piece of educational content, especially if it's built around awareness, just aren't going to help your business necessarily grow directly. Um, Andrew had a question uh, based on um, something you said right at the end about some third-party review sites. I'll let you go, Andrew. You can ask the question. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. Um, I actually got another question as you were uh, finishing up there, Keith. So I might have another two-parter for you, but I'll start with my original one here. First part. Um, why do you suppose, I, I think you said it was 57% of people are buying before they even pick up the phone and that, um, you know, they're using third-party reviews, peers, crowdsourcing. Uh, why do you suppose they're going that route versus visiting um, our branded website? Yeah, I think it's just because, you know, consumers are... <laughs> They, they've adapted to this idea that they go to a website, it's everything is going to speak to them the way that they, you know, that the company wants to speak to them. And they want to go to a trusted source that's outside that's giving them an unbiased view of what, uh, you know, what that really means to them. And so I think, you know, looking at third party review sites is an opportunity for them to see how, you know, people are unbiasedly, uh, you know, reviewing them or scoring them. Uh, you know, aside from what the company says about them themselves, right? I mean, it's easy for somebody to put on their website a testimonial that they made up. And, and that's one of the things that I think has kind of happened over the years from that. The other thing too, is like, it's the internet has evolved and technology has evolved. We've got platforms like Zoom, social media has evolved. So it's much easier now for us to actually go and get um, you know, trusted feedback from people that we know and, and trust, maybe not necessarily people that are local in our communities, but are local in our actual online network. And it's easy for us to reach out and say, hey, has anybody, you know, used a tool like this before? And that happens all the time, at least to me, right inside of our, our Slack boards within some of our communities that we have, you know, oftentimes we'll go there and say, hey, we're experiencing a problem with XYZ. Has anybody ever dealt with this before? Has anybody ever found a tool that helps with this or any of those types of things? So oftentimes you learn about new, new ideas and new things through those uh, trusted relationships that you're building and through communities as well. Um, and even communities like this, right? This is an opportunity for us to all kind of learn together and in an unbiased, you know, non-sales focused view. Great. Thanks. Uh, you may have just uh, tied up my second question there on your last statement um, with the communities. I was just going to ask, um, with everybody looking towards their peers and third-party review sites so frequently, what can we do as marketers to give that unbiased approach and make a human connection in our marketing efforts uh, in order to um, you know, fill our, our pipeline? Yeah. So looking at the flywheel, it's all about reducing friction, right? You want to create as much momentum as you can, and you want to reduce as much friction as you can as well. So, 
you know, take away anything that isn't necessary in order to get the content consumption, right? That's the, that's the goal is getting them to consume the content that you want them to consume. That's going to help them through that buying journey. So it starts by understanding who your, who your buyers are, what information they're looking for and where they hang out. And a great way to do that is to provide them with, you know, with helpful, unbiased, um, information, the information that they're interested in and looking for themselves. So a great way to do that is on social media. You can do it through, you know, podcast, you can do it on YouTube. You can also still allow people to subscribe to your email. Cause if somebody wants to subscribe to ongoing email, that's a great opportunity for them to, you know, stay in touch and engage with your brand, but don't handcuff a piece of, you know, educational content with a form to get it because, that that uh, email address doesn't really help you out anyway. And it's just going to clog up your CRM, especially if it's a no fit lead. Instead, give them that piece of content, make it easy for them to consume it. And when they're, you know, when they're ready, they're going to reach out to ask more questions and make it easy for them to also find a community that's familiar with your brand. Great. Thank you. Cool. Anything else, Jenny? Yeah, I, this one, uh, this is interesting because we just talked a little bit about this um, on our first live event. And here's a shameless plug. I will say that we will have a YouTube video of all of these going up eventually. So if you miss the first one, you'll be able to catch it. But anyway, Anna had asked, has the marketing funnel changed for 2022? Oh, yeah. So this is a really good, I'm glad you brought this one up, Anna. This is a really good question. So I think one of the big things that we're moving away from with the flywheel, right, is we're, we're moving away from the, the funnel completely. So the old playbook is really based on that concept around, uh, you know, building uh, a marketing funnel, right, where you, um, you had marketing sales and then, you know, your customers. And the, the problem with the funnel was, is it was just focused on generating the customer itself and provided no value after that, after the customer is created. So um, the flywheel transitions this where it actually puts the customer at the center of the methodology and is using that momentum uh, around the customers to help you know, spawn referrals and recommendations that are going to bring more business to you. So it's, it's uh, much stronger from a, from a, a customer-oriented or customer success-focused um, methodology than the previous funnel, funnel itself. So we say, you know, break the funnels, get rid of them, instead move to flywheels. They'll help grow your business over time. Awesome. I hope Anna got her answer. I have one more on the inbound marketing playbook, whether it's broken or not. Taylor says, how do I get my company, specifically my boss, to recognize changes moving forward as the executive team is very focused focus on leading metrics and they are really technologically driven. So the limitations of the technologies have become part of their marketing strategy and they don't know, she's trying to figure out how to get her bosses backing on this. Yeah. This is going to be really tough, right? Because if they're, if they are really focused on MQL leads and that's the way that they're driving their strategy, it's going to be really, really difficult to, change that. But I would, where I would start with this is really with that buyer research and uh, what we talked about earlier, right? Doing those win-loss interviews and collecting that qualitative feedback because that qualitative feedback is really what's going to help 
drive your marketing strategy itself. And if it's the customers themselves or the buyers themselves that are actually coming and telling you exactly, you know, about themselves, how they prefer to make purchasing decisions, what information is impacting their decision, the steps that they're taking in making that decision and who's all involved, then you can present that to your executive team and, and kind of show them that qualitative uh, feedback that's going to help make this transition. Additionally, you can start to focus away from just, um, you know, those, those quantitative metrics that they're looking at right now, like the number of leads or the website visits or, um, you know, the, the number of conversions or whatever, right? And transition that over to more of a self-reported attribution model where you're actually getting feedback from the, uh, you know, from the, the, the people that are filling out your buyer intent level forms by asking this simple question around, how did you find out about us? And that self-reported attribution will help us to also align back to where or what, what uh, activities and strategies are really driving the growth of your business. You can take that a step further and also look at that at the level of, um, you know, those opportunities that actually fit in the sales pipeline that are most likely to actually convert to a closed one sales. We try to look at that stage that's like 20% or greater and then align that back to that uh, self-reported um, attribution as well to see what actually drove the majority of those, um, you know, we call them high intent revenue opportunities or sales qualified opportunities. And the last piece of that is you can look at actual sales and th those that actually did end up in closed one. And you can look at the self-attribution reports to those as well to get clarity around what activities are actually driving uh, sales forward. So I think those are the most important metrics you can look at. Um, there's a few other things you can do from a qualitative perspective, um, having a community, uh, uh, building a community of sorts, you're going to get qualitative feedback from your community as well. Um, you'll get that type of qualitative data on social media. And you can do some of that also through survey, surveying your customers as well. So those are all different ideas, um, but it can be hard to convince leadership uh, to, to switch. So I think you want to gradually, I wouldn't just bring this to them and say, we're going to switch, just gradually start to, you know, show them this data, show them your findings, and then use that as an explanation for why we need to transition our marketing efforts to a better way. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, you have to start someplace and just benchmark where you are and where you're going to, you know, you'll look at it at three months, six months, but you definitely have to start somewhere. I think I'm going to move you along to the next topic to keep us true to our time. It's uh, 10 minutes after eight. So we can, I know you have a really good topic to finish up with. So when you're ready. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So the last topic I'm going to cover tonight is uh, using the RMB approach in 2022. So last week we discussed the 95-5 rule and its importance of building mental availability with your buyers. So if you missed the 99 or the 95-5 rule, in short, most of your buyers in your target market are out market. And if they don't know who you are when they come in market, then it's already too late. So 95% of those buyers are out market and about 5% are in market at any given time. And that idea though, right? If they don't know who you are when they come in market, then it's already too late. 
Why is that the case? Well, because buyers buy what's mentally available to them. So in fact, buyers evaluate less than two brands when they come in market. So if you want to grow, you need to build mental availability with your buyers. And building mental availability is about being remembered. If you, if you want to be remembered in 2022, we recommend using the RMB approach. So what is this RMB approach? Well, to start, the R stands for reaching everyone in the category, the category that you're targeting that is, right? This starts by defining your ideal customer profile. Um, if you're not familiar with your ideal customer profile, it, the ICP is a description of the company, not the individual buyer or the end user that's a perfect fit for your solution. So we're not looking at the buyer persona in this situation. We're actually looking at the ICP or the ideal customer profile, which is a description of the company that's the perfect fit for your solution. So you want to reach them evenly throughout the year. The key here is reach and recency. So we found that LinkedIn is the perfect channel for B2B companies to execute the RMB approach because you can easily target your specific audience, right? And reach everyone in the category with LinkedIn. The next piece is the M, which is message, right? Messaging or message around several category entry points that link your brand to key buying situations. This really helps to tighten your message, right? An example of this is Salesforce ran uh, some ads that said, we bring government and citizens together. And then they also ran another one that said, we bring manufacturers and customers together. So they're really messaging around these different category entry points, right? That's going to help them stay relevant and their messaging stay relevant with their targeted uh, market. And they're going to, it's a message that they're going to remember. The next, the next is the B and that stands for brand. So you want to brand everything with distinctive brand assets. So as an example, using Salesforce as an example, again, you think about the Salesforce cloud, or you also think about their uh, raccoon character called Astro, right? Um, you want to make sure you want to try to separate your brand so you don't look like anybody else, right? This is an opportunity for small brands to win. The RMB approach is the way small brands can win and stand out and gain that mental availability with their buyers. And the great news is, is most big brands, they ignore most of the market, right? They'd love to talk about themselves. They're obsessed with the big competitors. So they're not even focused on small brands. So this is a huge opportunity for small brands and themselves. There's another rule that kind of aligns to this. It's called the 60-40 rule. And the 60-40 rule really states that you should focus 60% of your efforts and budget on running long-term brand building campaigns and about 40% on immediate activation campaigns. So keep in mind that like short, getting short sales are great. Like, you know, short-term sales are great, but they need to be paired with brand building. And while brand building will take longer, it'll ultimately surpass the short-term sales. So if you, if you want to uh, have success here, you want to counter position, 
right? To compete for that mind share. So counter positioning is around, you know, choosing the opposite, being, being different in a way to compete, compete for that mind share. Example of this might be how Netflix states that we have no commercials, no ads, we're on demand, which is opposite of what the biggest competitors in their, their biggest competitors are doing. So this is a, a great example of how to counter position. The real problem marketers face is brand unawareness. Most people don't think about your brand at all. That's the real problem. So you need to focus on building mental availability if you want to grow. And combining LinkedIn with the RMB approach is a winning combination to start to build mental availability. All right, cool, Jenny. Um, that kind of wraps up what I had about RMB. So I'll take any questions you might, might have there. Uh, but again, I think the key here is not focusing so much on, you know, generating short-term or short wins, but really focus on how are you going to, uh, you know, market for the long-term, right? Marketing's a long game. Marketing is pure offense. And, and really thinking about marketing as its own, uh, as its own effort. And it's, it's a really a, a long-term opportunity to grow your brand versus, you know, that short-term sales. Most of those are sales activities and really separating out what's marketing and what's sales. Yeah. I think you just are, you're leading right into the question that I got from Jason, because it is kind of long-term it's um, his question is how do you measure the ROI with long-term out market marketing? In other words, you know, how, how do you gauge if you're making an impact? Yeah. I mean uh, uh, I think again, you can do that with that self-reported attribution that I had mentioned before. That's an opportunity for you to, um, really look and see where you're driving uh, those high and high buyer intent opportunities, and also where your sales are actually coming from. So that, that self-reported attribution really helps to uh, provide clear signals around what's working and what's not. And obviously, as you start to build mental availability, um, you're going to see the you're going to see these efforts show up more and more in those self uh, self reported attribution reports. I, I think you know not to give it away. I think that's something we're going to talk about a little bit more in our next segment as well. Yeah, and uh, to follow up to that same question, it's really kind of how you get your stakeholders on board. Again, they tend to be resistant because it takes a while to show true results. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so if you have any other suggestions about this, but you kind of did cover that. Hang on, I think we got another question. Um, okay, I'm unmuting you, Andrew. Thanks, Jenny. Um, so you had mentioned this RMB approach um, and LinkedIn being a good channel or a network to promote this on. What types of campaigns are showing the best results uh, for your RMB approach? And I've got a guest here. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the question, Andrew. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know you're gonna want to you're gonna want to test this out around those different category entry points, right? And uh, and messaging, right? This is this is the the concept you're gonna look at. Again, it's more about providing this information to them uh, consistently 
and persistently over time. So it's that reach and recency that's more the most important and knowing that you're, you're, you're actually putting this ad in front of your targeted audience on a consistent basis. So another way to think about this, right, is if you could, you know, buy a billboard ad, right, but instead of putting it on the highway where everybody in the world sees it and most of them aren't ever gonna buy from you, you can actually create this targeted billboard ad that's that goes to your very specific audience. They're the only ones that are going to see it and you get to show it to them consistently throughout the year. Hope that answers your question or if you're looking for a little bit more there. I, yeah, sure. it, uh, it, it does answer the question. I guess I'm wondering, you know, you compared it to a billboard. Is this a, uh, you know, high cost type of campaign or is it relatively low cost? Again, with, with LinkedIn, it's going to really uh, depend on your overall budget. But, you know, I think that uh, um, you really want to look at what your overall ad spend is total in total and see where you're, you're spending money right now that's not producing results and maybe allocate some of that spend back over to uh, some efforts like RMB. So if you're doing uh, you know, Google AdWords and you're looking at your reports and, and Google AdWords isn't really producing results for you, that might be an opportunity to switch that, whatever you're spending there over to, um, you know, to an RMB approach. So some companies are spending, you know, uh, five, $6,000 a month on Google AdWords. Other companies are spending, you know, 50,000 to 150,000 a month on Google AdWords. Um, and there's, Oppor there's better opportunities there than, than uh, uh, Google AdWords, I believe, and actually getting a message presented in, in front of your targeted audience. Now, if you look at like the LinkedIn campaign manager, if you wanted to run like a brand reach test, you know, they're, they're you know, noting that you need to spend like 90,000 a month, but certainly you can run these campaigns for much less than that uh, and still be effective. It really depends on your audience size. There's a lot of factors that come into play. Um, so you're going to have to really test it out and see, you know, what works best, uh, for your business and what stage of the business you're in. Great. That helps a lot. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I just want to mention if, yeah, just kind of a little housekeeping myself. You can always email any kind of questions before the show or during the week or whenever to learn at managingbound.com. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, you know, just a, a, a few takeaways here, um, you know, from tonight, right? Number one is don't build buyer personas based on demographic information, really take your time, do the research and find out how your buyers make their purchasing decisions or prefer to make their purchasing decisions. Second, put your customers at the center of your strategy, right? Use your customers to create new growth for your business. They're part of that community that I talked about before, right? And your customers are out there talking about you, sharing the word, spreading the word. This is a great opportunity to, ha to have your customers help you grow. And, and their networks within those communities are going to help you do that as well. And then the third piece of that is, you know, focus on building mental availability within your buyer's minds, right? Because um, if, if, you're not, if you're not mentally available to them when they come in market, they're likely going to choose the whatever's mentally available to them first. And if they don't, they don't go necessarily to search like they did before. 
they go to their networks or they go to review sites or they go to communities that they trust and they reach out to them. And so whoever's mentally available to, to those people in their networks or mentally available, you know, um, in their communities or, or, um, or in their, you know, their kind of inner circle that they go to, right, are going to be the brands that get, that get recognized first. So brand building has to be a big part of this and using the RMB approach is a great way to do that. All right, cool. So if you missed a portion of this, we will post this on YouTube here um, uh, after the show. And then additionally, the uh, audio will be available on our podcast, which we'll be releasing here as well. Should be within the next week. Um, as far as next, the next session will happen on Wednesday, March 2nd, uh, 4.30 Pacific, 7.30 Eastern. And we're going to be uh, we're going to be focusing on um, tech. Don't let technology lead your strategy, your growth strategy. So this is a big one, right? Don't let technology lead your growth strategy. Stop wasting time with lead scoring and focus on buying intent instead. And finally, uh, why most attribution reports aren't accurate. So we talked a little bit about attribution reports tonight. And next week we're going to dive in, or not next week, but on March 2nd, we're going to dive into uh, a bit more around attribution reports themselves and why most of them just aren't very accurate. Cool. So if anybody has any questions, I'll take them now. If not, uh, I think we can wrap things up. I'm not seeing any in the chat and I think we are good unless someone wants to type something in right All now right. or jump on. Sounds <laughs> good. good. I uh, thank everyone for joining us tonight. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of the Inbound Growth Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed the show and got some valuable ideas and tips to help you grow your business and deliver a remarkable experience to your customers. It would mean the world to me if you would provide us with a review of the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you in advance. I'm so grateful for your support.